Good morning, everybody. I must confess that I was a little bit worried when we didn't do the offering. I was going to be like Saul and maybe do the offering myself. <laughs> Wouldn't have ended well, though. And then Alan would have came through the doors and said, you didn't wait for me. <laughs> Take your Bibles. Turn with me to the book of Romans. Romans chapter 5. Our passage today was going to be six chapter, verses 6 through 11. Romans 5, 6 through 11. Let me preface this before we even dig into this. You know, I think that there are a lot of things that we can be wrong about when it comes to God. We can be wrong about maybe the way we dress. We can be wrong about how we worship. Um, and even to that to an extent, we can be wrong about tithing. We can be wrong about, you know, some particular doctrines. We can be wrong about things like that. But there are certain things that we have to have correct and we have to have a right understanding of uh, to be forgiven, to be saved. Uh, we have to hold to certain untenable priority doctrines, I guess you can say, in order for us to call ourselves Christians. These are non-negotiables. And there are things that we can be wrong about, and then there are things that we, we need to be correct in. And I say this to say this, that I think that a lot of people are wrong about this one particular thing that we're going to look at today. I think that most people are woefully mistaken about the love of God. If you can call that a doctrine or if there is a term for that, uh, people are mistaken about the love of God. I'm not accusing anyone in here of that, but I'm saying as, as a whole, as a majority, I think a lot of people are. The majority of America is mistaken, and they have a mistaken understanding about the love of God. And I single America out because that's the country that I'm from, and I can speak particularly of the circumstances that, that we face in our country. I know experientially that, that our country is just saturated with Christianity, with the gospel. I mean, you look at our, our, our glorious town of Holton, all right? You know, this is a small population, six, 7,000 people, and we've got churches on every corner. And I would say that that's somewhat of a decent reflection of the country. We live in a country where there are churches plenty. Um, but not all churches preach the gospel. Not all churches are real churches. Um, some are, are layers of, of Satan. Um, polls also would indicate that it's like 40%, 40 or 50% of the country, right, of the population of America, some 330 million people, half of that are professing Christians. How different our country would be if that were true. Right? How different would our nation be if half the country were, were believers, who were regenerated, who had the Spirit of God in them, who, who held to the Bible as their authority and wanted to seek and do the will of God? How different our world would be. Many people, I think, then, are Christians in identity. They grow up in church, they get older, they get married, they have kids, and then they take their kids to church because that's what they did when they were kids. And it's a perpetual cycle of this Christianese, I call it. On top of this, you have a lot of bad teaching inside of America about the person of Jesus. It's a very common belief that God just loves and he adores everyone so, so utterly much. 
and he doesn't have any requirements of you, and he just loves you, and he just wants you to be happy. And to an extent, God does seek our best. He wants what's best for us. But he doesn't want us to just be happy in doing the things that make us happy. Because the things that really make us happy are sinful things before we're converted. He, just, he doesn't just want us to be happy. If you bring up verses about God's holiness or his intolerance or his, his hatred of sin, they're disregarded with comments like, well, God is too loving to, to punish somebody. I've heard that before. Or how can an all-loving, this, this is the atheist one, how can, this is their, their wisdom, how can an all-loving God, an all-loving God, show any anger? He's all-loving. That's their, that's their gotcha question. And even when you demonstrate the reasonableness of God's wrath, people will still illogically reject it. They'll hold on to this belief that even though you can convince them and show them that they have broken God's laws, that if they were to stand before God and he were to just judge them on the Ten Commandments alone, that they would, they would have, they'd be guilty of breaking it. They hold to this belief that, that even though they're guilty, that when they get to heaven, God is just going to kind of let it go. He's just going to forgive them. You know, like, why, why God, God is just going to forgive me. He's not like you and I. They, they hold to this belief. And sadly, as a result of that, I think many people will go to hell. Many people will go to hell with a false understanding of the love of God. So now what I ask you in our time together, I ask you to carefully listen to what I'm about to present to you. Because if I can accurately present this to you and accurately understand this text, it's as if God is speaking to you today. The words you're about to hear, they're not my words, but they're they're Paul's words, and they're Paul's words under the inspiration of God. The Bible says that all scripture, which we're about to read, is given by God and is profitable for reproof and correction and doctrine and instruction in righteousness. So as we answer the question, what is the love of God? I think it's a very easy one to understand that who better to ask about the love of God than God himself? Let's see what God has to say about his love. So let's read our text together, Romans 5. Would you all, if you can, please stand with me as we read our text. Romans 5, 6 through 11. I'll read it for you now. Romans 5, 6 through 11 says this. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet, peradventure for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commended his love toward us, in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Let's pray. Dear Father, I thank you just, Lord, for this opportunity to, to be together here in this church, uh, to worship you, Lord, through the singing of, of these psalms and these songs that we have, uh, to, to be reminded of great truths in, in your word. I pray, Father, that you would use me a weak and feeble and unspoken man. 
Lord, to glorify your name, to exalt these truths that we're about to see for ourselves. I pray, Lord, that you would bless us, your children, in it. And I pray, God, that if there is, not, if there is someone here who has yet to become a child of God, I pray, God, that maybe through this that you would reveal your glory and your love and call them into a right relationship with you, dear Father. We thank you for this time. I pray you be with me and give me utterance and boldness to proclaim your word in truth. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Let's see if I can ration this water out through the message. <laughs> so we begin our, in our text, right? Romans 5, 6 through 11. Just for some context here, Paul, he has been talking earlier about how one is justified before God and what, what that actually accomplishes, what that actually means for the person. And truly, when we understand what that means and we understand the state that we are in when we are born again, that we are the state that we're in when we're made right with God, it will cause us to rejoice, as it says, to rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And Paul doesn't just stop there, but he continues by saying that we shouldn't only be happy about our justification, but we should also be happy about the, the trials that we go through. Because we know that when we endure trials, that they teach us patience. And when you learn patience, then you acquire experience. Right, why don't we just read it, just because Paul can say it better than me. <laughs> Verse 3 and 4, he says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. When you learn patience, you acquire experience. And when a trial happens, you, you get experience in dealing with it, and in patience you endure it. And the more trials you endure, the more patience you get, the more experience you have. And when you have all this experience and this patience, then you can have hope in adversity, knowing that you can rely on a holy, loving, sovereign God in the midst of your trials, knowing that he's in control of it. You will have experience which will lead you to having hope, hope in the glory of God. And as it says here in that text, that hope maketh not ashamed. It means that hope doesn't fail you. It isn't ashamed. It, 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 your hope will not be let down, right? You can place your hope in a lot of things in this world, but, you know, you're going to get your heart broken. You're going to get, get let down at times. But when you put your hope in God, you'll never be let down. You'll never be ashamed, as it says here. Why? Because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given into us. In other words, Paul is saying here that the reason that our hope in God never fails is because God has an infinite amount of love for his children. And in any trial, you can cling to him, knowing this, that his love just pours out into your hearts like a pitcher with water. But maybe a better illustration is like, is if, if, this, is, if this pitcher was like the head of a fire hose attached to the ocean. And it just gushes out and it just pours out. And it's an infinite supply. This hose just sucking up the water from the ocean. Just pours out. And that's the illustration that Paul is giving here. That God's love is just poured out abundantly into our hearts by the Holy Ghost, which is given to us. So Paul is trying to teach Christians something here. He's trying to teach them about the love of God. So he's going to pause here, and he's going to give us an illustration. 
and you know, Jesus did this commonly. In, in the Gospels, you see him give illustrations to kind of emphasize a, a heavenly truth. And so he mimics Jesus in doing so. So look at verse 6. We'll read it. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. This is not an illustration at this point. He begins with a factual statement, as a matter of fact. And he does this that his analogy, which he'll say in the future, will make more sense. He says, For when we were yet without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Let's take that apart a little bit so we can have a more thorough grasp of it. Look at the first part of that verse. For when we were yet without strength, First of all, I want to clarify that Paul here is talking to his readers, obviously. Right? When you write a letter to somebody, you, the person who's going to read it is the recipient of the letter. So when he says here, for when we were yet without strength, the we here is them. But he's also including himself. For when, for, for we were, for I, I was, in other words, he's saying. For we were, as believers as a whole, before their conversion, we were yet without strength. Paul wants them to understand this. He wants them to understand God's great love for them. And remember, Rome was not like America. All right? There was no uh, Bible belt. There was no church belt in Rome. All right? It was just that, that, that Rome was this. Right? You want to know the extent of Christianity in Rome? The church in Rome. It was just the, the church in Rome. That was it. They didn't have different options and denominations and all sorts of bunches. They had the church in Rome. That one, one church in that megacity. Not to, mention, not to mention that the church there, it, it probably would have been mainly consisted of Gentiles. Right? So these are folks that who, they weren't Jews, so they didn't really have a, a rich understanding of the Old Testament, if any. They didn't really know much. Right? They knew that Jesus had died for them. Paul or someone had preached to them and they had come to faith in Jesus, but, but they didn't really have a, a full understanding. Uh, they didn't have a whole Bible like we do. And so Paul is writing to them, to teach them about this wonderful and glorious truth. The truth that we're going to see for ourselves with our eyes and ears today. So he begins with this. He says again, For when, uh, I'm sorry, when we, us, were without strength. Stop right there again. What does Paul mean, without strength? What does that mean? It seems obvious on the surface level, right? Without strength, you're unable to resist. You have no capacity to do something. This, how this Greek word is translated in other portions of Scripture illustrates the meaning of this word, which tells them, right, the Romans, and us about our, our, our conversion before we were converted. The word here is, I'm going to try to pronounce this, asthenes, asthenes. And it's translated consistently in the New Testament as this, weak or sick. When we read the gospel accounts of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we read of large crowds of sick and weak and lame people who came to Jesus for healing. This word is also translated impotent. And I like that word impotent. I didn't know it before, but I like it. It has a good definition, and I feel like it really paints the picture here. It means lacking power or ability. So when you combine all of this together, you can cl clearly see our state in the past, the state that we were in as it reads when Christ died for the ungodly. 
We were impotent. We were sick. We were weak. We were lame. We were without strength. We were completely sick. The disease of sin had ravished our body, leaving us weak, rendering us completely useless and unclean. We lacked any ability or cure or desire to save ourselves from this issue of sin and its inevitable fate, which is death. We were helpless and, as Paul says, without strength. Scripture supports this and tells us this also. Turn with me to Ephesians 2.1. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. Many of you probably know it. Talking about these, these Romans before their conversion. Romans 2.1. What state were they in before? It says here in our text, Romans 2, 1, And you hath he quickened, or made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins. Spiritually speaking, before our conversion, we were dead in our trespasses and sins. We had no spiritual life in us. It was as if our body is in the floor, and we're buried underneath six feet, but Instead of dirt, it's just six feet of transgression and iniquity and lust and all sorts of um, sins. We were dead, spiritually speaking. We were without strength. Go also now to Romans, um, John, John, the Gospel of John. John six forty four. John six forty four, and see what it says here. Jesus talking says this, No man can come to me except the Father which hath sent me draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Again, we see this picture, we see this, this truth that believers, that, that before our conversion we were dead, we had no spiritual life in us, we were impotent, we were without strength, that God had to call us. We, we had no ability to save ourselves. We were helpless, and again, as Paul says, we were without strength. Go back to our text again, Romans 5. For when we were yet without strength, when we were helpless, God, he didn't leave us in that state of inability forever, though. Look at the next three words in that that verse. In due time. In due time. For when we were yet without strength, in due time. In other words, in the appointed time, or in the season of, in the time that God had chosen, in the time that the, the socio-economical, political, cultural, and religious settings were met, that he desired, uh, those prerequisites that he wanted in place were met, he sent his son into the world to die for sinners. Go to Galatians, Galatians chapter 4. This verse really um, expounds on that. Paul says, For when we were yet without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. He says here in Galatians 4, talking about that right time, Galatians 4, 4, But when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son, made of woman, made under the law. Again, we see at the right time, God sent forth his son to die for the ungodly. And as a side note here, right? 
look at that verse again, verse 4 in Galatians. When the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his Son. Um, this, this is another great text to prove the pre-existence of Jesus Christ. You know, some people would say that Jesus was born when he, when, when he, he came into existence when he was born by Mary under the, 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 the Holy Spirit, right? But this is not the case, obviously, right? Because why? You can't send someone who isn't there, right? I can't say, I'm going to send John. He's going to help you, right? It's like John's not even there, right? And, and God, he can't send forth his son if his son isn't there to send forth. So at the right time, God sent forth his son to be in the likeness or the appearance of sinful flesh to do what? To die for the ungodly. And so he did. Go back in our text, Romans 4. He did. Christ died for the ungodly. Jesus died. The Messiah was slain. God's anointed one killed. When Jesus went to the cross, he was murdered there. This is what the eyewitnesses of the crucifixion report. This is what, this, to a greater degree, this is what God says in his own word. He didn't pass out. He wasn't in a coma. The New Testament authors who were eyewitnesses or partners of those eyewitnesses, they attest that that day Christ died. His physical body had been slain. This is important. This is important. I Maybe I'll jump into it a little bit, but now for the sake of time, I don't want to get into it. But it's important. Christ had to have died to fulfill the scriptures, right? He had to have shed his blood for us. That was what all the Old Testament was pointing to. So there was no way in which Jesus, the Savior, could have not died for us, or else he wouldn't have fulfilled the scriptures. Back in our text, he died for the ungodly. For the ungodly. Who is that? Who is the ungodly? That's a simple one. It's me. It's you. We are the ungodly. We are among those from whom Christ died. Christ died for the ungodly. That word, it means irreverent, impious, wicked. He died for men who were lacking proper respect and seriousness for his sacrifice. He died for men who were evil and detestable. At the right time, God sent forth his son to die for men who deserved to die themselves. He died for the ungodly, for men who were not worth it, who certainly were not worth it. So we see that statement there in verse 6. And now Paul, in trying to show something glorious, he gives us this illustration. He gives us a story, in other words. So having now explained the statement, we go on to our next verse, verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet peradventure for a good man, someone even dared to die. He, he uses this analogy to profess something that's really simple, but also profound. And let me say this. If you can grasp this right now, if you can understand what Paul is about to say, if you can perceive this, I can assure you that it will fill your heart with such joy, love, and hope. You'll have such great assurance in what Jesus did for you, if you can understand this. His perfect love, as the word says, will cast out all fear. And I also, I say this, if you're here today, 
and you know in your heart that you're not a Christian, that you've never confessed to God your sinfulness, and that you've never really placed your, your, your faith and trust and hope in Jesus, this statement that we're about to read here is going to swing the door wide open for you. And it will call you into a relationship with such a God as ours. You're going to be blown away by this. If you've never done that, prepare, because you are about to be offered the greatest gift of your life that you've ever heard of. I hope I've built enough suspense here. This is truly heavenly we're about to read. It's truly, it's truly, you know, some people coin this as the John 3.16 of Romans. You know, it's a very popular verse, John 3.16. If you can understand this, I promise you, you'll be changed. So here's the story. Verse 7. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. Let me explain what Paul is saying here. With great difficulty, you're going to find someone that's willing to die in place for a righteous man or a just man. And just to clarify here, Paul isn't saying that there are righteous people and that there are good people who are worthy of, of sacrifice like that. Because in chapter 3, we see a, just a, a long condemnation of man. Um, he says abundantly clear that there's none righteous, that, that no one seeks after God, that no one understands that we are gone out of the way which God made for us, that we are together become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good. You know, the, the, the state of humanity is this. <laughs> so when Paul says, you know, um, when he refers to a righteous person and to a good person, he's not talking about righteous in their standing before God. But he's just kind of talking common sense here, like a good person, like a decent person. Like we all know decent people in our lives that we think, man, those people are just pleasant to be around. You know, like, I just, I just love them. Even if they're not Christians, I just love them. They're just good people. You know, they're kind. And what he's saying here is this, that you'd be hard-pressed to find someone willing to give his life for theirs. Even if they're a really good person. Even if they're a good person, maybe worthy of it. Maybe some would be bold in their sacrifice. But again, those are hard to come by. I want to share a little story with you. Um, when I was in boot camp... We didn't have any immediate connection to the world, except by letters, of course. And one day, they took the entire company of recruits and put them into one building, which was, at the time, extremely odd. We didn't have other contact with, with, with those platoons, and so it was very, very odd. And then a senior enlisted man, who we had never seen, comes before the podium, and we knew all of our instructors. They made us know them. To this day, I still know them. <laughs> I try to forget. So we had never seen this guy, and he's some high-ranking senior enlisted man. And he comes up to the podium, and he tells us this, that North Korea had declared war on America, that Russia and China, they had formed a coalition, and that essentially World War III had commenced. He told us that if we desired, we could leave the service now and go home, if this was too much for us or what we didn't sign up for. Now remember this. We were people who had volunteered to give our lives to the service of our country. Over three-fourths of our platoon and around half of the building slowly trickled out. I wasn't a Christian at the time, but I give God the glory for this in saying that I stayed. But it was with great difficulty and much tears that I accepted my faith that, man, I'm going to get killed. There's no way I'm going to survive World War III. I should have known, though, and I'm sure Chris knows this, that Uncle Sam would never let that many able-bodied men leave just that easily. 
The ones who left the building, they were immediately met with drill instructors <laughs> who smoked them so bad that they wished that they were in World War III. The point is this. Most people aren't willing to give their lives for others, even if they're worth it. And this brings us to our third point, to what Paul is trying to illustrate here before explaining it. Let's read verse 7 and then verse 8, and maybe you'll see where Paul is going in this thought here. He says in verse 7, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God commendeth, God proved his love toward us. You know, no one can ever, in, in eternity past, in eternity in the future, for all time, no one can ever question the love of God. Because he's gone to such great means and demonstrated it for us all to see. And when did God do this for us? What does it say? While we were yet sinners. God didn't tell us to clean up our act. He didn't tell us to perform a certain amount of righteous deeds. He didn't say do a certain amount of rituals to come to him, speak to a person. No, he did this. He actually came to us. It says that God was manifest in the flesh and walked amongst us. And he went to the cross willingly. He came to us while we were sinners, while we were criminals, while we were wholly unworthy of, a ho of love from a holy God. He demonstrated perfect love toward us. And that's what that word means, commendeth. It means that he demonstrated or he proved. In other words, he stands with his decision. Right? It's as if the judge is making a decision and he unashamedly stands with his decision. God is unashamed in his love for us. He proves it. And also, this is something to, as a note to, to know as well, this, is, this word here, commendeth, in the Greek, it's actually a present tense. Now, I'm not going to bore you on all that stuff because, one, I don't know it myself, but I did a little research and learned this. When we read proved or demonstrated or commendeth, we think of a past action, right? If I proved something to you, you think of something that maybe I did before. But actually, this word here, commendeth, it's a present verb. It's a present action, meaning this, that God is demonstrating his love now, that God is proving his love now or continually. Every generation that's ever born is, is, is exposed to the love of God. God proves his love every single day for us. And he did this when? What does it say? While we were yet sinners. God proved his love undeniably for us in that while we were sinners, sick and unclean, criminals and rebels, Christ died for us. That's how, that's how vast God's love is. That's how perfect, that's how measureless his love is, how selfless it is. You know, it's real easy to love someone who loves you back, all right? It's real easy to love someone who is pleasant to be around. It's a little bit harder to love someone who doesn't particularly like you. And it's even harder to love someone who hates you. And yet, that's exactly what God did for us. Turn with me to the book of Matthew. The book of Matthew. <clears throat> chapter 5, I'm sorry, <laughs> I didn't say the chapter. Chapter 5, verse 46. 
we could read the rest of that passage there, but just to prove my point here, he says, Jesus, in verse 46, For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans do the same? In other words, if you love those who love you, what are you really, like, that's not hard to do. Do you know that even the tax collectors do the same? And the tax collectors, they were seen as, as essentially the, the traitors of society. They were seen as the, the scum, degenerates, criminals, extorting their own people. And Jesus is saying, look, even this person loves someone who loves him back. But Paul goes further in this, and this is the point of the illustration. And I'm going to make this illustration very real to you all right now. Be honest in your heart. Ask yourself this very moment. Would you be willing to give your life for someone else's? Perhaps some would, perhaps some wouldn't. Perhaps for a good man, some of us would be bold in our sacrifice of our life for his. But the real question is this. Would any of you be willing to give your life for a murderer? Would any of you be willing to give your life for an adulterer? Who is in here in this building right now that's willing to go to the Aroostook County Jail and to give their life for someone in there and to serve their sentence for them? You understand what Paul is doing here? Do you understand what he's saying? That's exactly what God did for us. You see, God didn't seek good people or righteous people to save. He didn't look for, for outstanding citizens. He looked for ones who weren't worthy of it. Jesus died for sinners. He died for people who didn't deserve rescue. He accepted beatings and mockings of men who blasphemed him and ridiculed him. Nails were driven into his hands to hold him to a piece of wood. But not first after he was scourged and beaten so horrifically that he was unrecognizable. He was placed in between two guilty men so as to say that he's just as guilty as them. Jesus did that for murderers. He did that for blasphemers. He did that for adulterers. He did that for homosexuals. He did that for liars. He did that for thieves. He did that for convicted criminals. He did that for your sins and he did that for my sins. Isaiah 53, 5 says that he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. 1 Peter 3.18 says that by the stripes that Jesus suffered, we are healed. That the just suffered for the unjust. That the Holy One, who had done no sin, suffered for the ones who had done nothing but sin. So we see here, just what a savior we have in God. But Paul isn't even trying to exalt just this verse here. He's actually building on something greater, if you can believe that. Let's read our final verses, verses 9 through 10. In Romans, I'm sorry, um, <laughs> I'm about to read you Matthew 6, 9 through 10. <laughs> Romans 5, 9 through 10 says this. Let's read verse 8. But God commended his love toward us in that, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. That term there, much more than in verse 9, it's an interesting, it was a Jewish mechanism of communication. In that time, if you wanted to express something grand, if you really wanted to, to make a point, you would start with something lesser, and then you would build to the greater. If you wanted to show something, the grandness of something you're trying to show, you would start with a lesser item, and then you'd build to the greater. And that is not to say that what we just read is anything less, but it does tell us something incredible. It emphasizes the preceding text. Whenever you read much more than, it'd probably be good to read the, the previous verse a couple of times. It was as if Paul was trying to write in bold, underlined characters. If God loved us so greatly, so as to send his only precious son to die for us, not when we were in an acceptable state, but while we were enemies and haters of God. If he did that for us then, you see what he's doing? Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. If God loved us when we were so utterly unlovable, then how much more is that love of God now that we are his children, now that we are forgiven? How much more is that love of God when, that he demonstrated to us that when we were sinners against him and at war against him, as, as we see in another passage, how much more is that love of God now that we're at peace with him, now that we have been reconciled, now that we have received the atonement or the reconciliation, the bringing together, the union of, 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 of sinful man and, and holy God? How much more is that love of God? If he did that then, how much more now? Go with me to Romans 8. Romans 8. And we're almost done here. Romans 8, thir verse 31 through 34. I just want to, I want to kind of go a little bit deeper. Romans 8, 31 says this. What shall we then say to these things? If God be for us, who can be against us? Who can oppose God, in other words? Who can resist his will? Who can thwart any purpose of God? Look at verse 32. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? In other words, if God sacrificed his son, to save those who were his enemies. How then could he withhold lesser gifts when he's given the treasures of heaven itself, when he's given the greater gift? How will he withhold lesser things? Verse 33, Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth. In other words, who can bring any accusation of God's elected ones? God was the one that justified them. He was the one that justified them. You know, it's as futile as you getting a speeding ticket in, a, in, in our court over here, and the judge says, you're going to pay $100, and you say, I object. It's as futile as that. The authority lies with the judge, who is the arbitrator of truth. And he has the ability to pardon or to condemn, 
to make you suffer or to forgive you. Verse 34, who is he that condemneth? Who is he that condemneth? It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen again, who is even at the right hand of God, who also maketh intercession for us. In other words, this, who can make a valid argument for our condemnation? It was Jesus Christ who paid our fine in his blood. If you say, if you have an argument for our condemnation, as Satan does, if you say that, no, he cannot be saved, you're going to have to get past Jesus. Because he paid for it. He paid for our condemnation. And he was killed, and he was raised again as proof of God's accepting of his sacrifice. And as the scripture says, he's ascended into heaven. And it says that he pleads on our behalf, like an Old Testament high priest. He intercedes for us. He advocates like a lawyer pleading our case. He does this not with yearly sacrifices as the old high priest would do, but he did this with his atonement, which he made once and for all as he offered his body. And as it says, he now ever liveth to maketh intercession for his people. Who is he that can lay a charge against God elect? Who is he that can condemn those for who Christ saved? Do you see how futile it is? Being now justified, go back in our text, I'm sorry. Verse 9, much more than everything we just heard before, take it another level, is what he's saying here, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. This is a fact. When a sinner comes to God in contrition for sin and in faith in Jesus, that person is then, as it says, justified in his blood. To be justified means to be rendered innocent or to regard as righteous. So in other words, God, at the point of a believer's repentance and faith in his son, God renders that person innocent and he regards him as righteous. And we'll see where that righteousness comes from. The word justified is a legal and forensic term in its nature. We stand, all of us stand before God, guilty of breaking his laws. Our condemnation is just and our sentence is fair, which is an eternity in hell where instead of love being poured out on us, with that picture analogy, it's wrath that's poured out on us. But instead of us suffering that fate, Jesus steps in and says, Father, I will pay for that sin. I will pay for his sins. He stands in the way of that fire hose, in other words. And that's what Jesus Christ did for us. The wrath of God was going to be poured out eternally unto the souls of billions, and in other words, it was compressed into a few short hours as God crushed his son with his wrath and his holy indignation for sin. He has to. He has to. God, God is loving and God is just. But if he, if he neglects justice, then he's not loving. And if he's only loving, then he neglects justice. And so on the cross, God satisfied love and justice. 
Love in that he sent his son to die for us and justice in that the sins that we had committed and the punishment that we deserved, he placed on his son and made him pay for it. A pastor once said this, that Jesus probably didn't even feel the pain of the cross as he endured the much worse spiritual nature of what was happening that day as God just poured out all of his wrath onto his son. Jesus absorbed all of that wrath for his people. There isn't any more wrath left for believers. Romans 8.1 says this, that there is therefore, there, there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation left for the ones who are in Jesus, for the ones who've placed their faith. He stands in front of them. As we read earlier, he advocates, he intercedes and pleads for his people. Go with me to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, chapter 5, verse 21. A very, very popular verse. If I can find Corinthians. Second Corinthians 5, 21. It says this, For he hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. For he hath made him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Let me explain this. It wasn't that Jesus became sin. It wasn't that the Holy One became the epitome of sin. It wasn't that he became a sinner on the cross. It's that this, that on the cross, he was punished for all of the sins of all who would ever believe as if he had committed them himself. And although we, who are not righteous in any sort of way, we're treated as if we are already righteous. God treated Jesus as if he had committed believers' sins, and he treated us as if we did not, as if we had only done the righteous deeds of Christ. You see what happened there? He got what we deserved, and we get what he deserved. What a trade. What an exchange. What a gospel. Go back to our text here. I just want to read it one more time before we close. Verse 6, we'll read it all together now says this, For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man someone even dared to die. But God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. So we're done here pretty much. But I want to speak to you all personally now. I've said a lot, as my problem is, But if anything, hear me out now. Please listen to what I'm going to say to you. 
If you have been born again, if you yourself have come to Jesus to be saved, not your parents, not your, your family, but if you yourself have come to him, then know this for a surety that Jesus endured all of the wrath of God for you, leaving nothing left. There's no wrath left for you. He drank the cup, as it were, completely. And not only that, but all of his righteous deeds and merits that he did and earned in this life, all of the righteousness that he accrued, he now gives to you. And now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sins, he doesn't see your faults and your failures. He doesn't see you as a sinner, even though you still sin. He only sees now his son's perfect righteousness, as it were a robe on you. So know with confidence that if God went to such great lengths to save you when you were an enemy, know that he will certainly save you now that you're a son and daughter of his. And I also have to say this, that if you are not a follower of Jesus Christ this morning, let me personally invite you and call you this morning to a real relationship with the God, the only God of this universe. A God that's demonstrated such foreign and unearthly and alien and unhuman love as this. A love that you will never experience outside of him. Consider this. Ask yourself this for real. Why would I resist such a God? He literally came down in the flesh. He was, Jesus Christ, it said, was the invisible, was the image of the invisible God. He walked amongst us. And he went to the cross and suffered and died to save you. He willingly chose this to do this for you. As we know, he said in his arrest in the garden that, that if he wanted to, he can call down a legion of angels to deliver him. And that legion would have slaughtered every human that ever existed. He could have done that, but he didn't. In love, he restrained himself. And he bled and died on that cross willingly. And there's one more thing I have to say. If God did that to save sinners, what will he do to you for rejecting such an offer of forgiveness as this? Perhaps you're thinking this. Perhaps you're thinking that in your heart you know what I'm saying is true. But you just can't bring yourself to surrender. Perhaps you know that in so doing, you're going to have to give up a lot of things. You're going to have to change your life. Those sins, you're going to have to forsake. I know because that was me as well. You know, we're so blessed and fortunate in America that we, we are exposed to the gospel. But in another, another perspective of this, you know, how scary it is. Because for my life, I grew up in church. I went to church every single service. And time and time again, I rejected God's gospel, God's offering of peace. So I can say this because I know that was me. But let me tell you this. Maybe you're thinking that there's a loss in this faith. That if you come to Jesus now, that you're going to miss out on things. That you won't get to do fun things. But it's not like that at all. You know, you think of Adam and Eve in the garden. They had all those fruits and those trees. And what does Satan do? Satan said, 
You, have, you don't have all these things. Look, you're missing out on this one good tree. God had given them so much, and Satan emphasized the fact that God had restrained one thing. And look what it cost. So there is no loss in coming to faith in Jesus Christ. The love of God and the person of Jesus Christ is the greatest thing that you'll ever experience in this life. And the fact is that he offers that to you this day. He offers you yet another chance to come to him. So my prayer has been, and my prayer will be, that you don't put it off and that you come to him in prayer. That you beg him for forgiveness, that you confess to him your sins, that you just come clean to him and believe in the Lord Jesus. Place your confidence in him as your own savior. Take him as your new master and commit to following him no matter what the cost. Do this this morning and you too will be justified in his blood and saved from the wrath that is to come because you are now in him and your sins have been forgiven you. And as he says, as far as the east is from the west, so far has I removed his iniquity. He's cast it into the sea. Again, if you're a Christian, we can, as the word says, joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Our sins have been forgiven. Eternal fellowship with, with the Father, with the Son, with the Holy Spirit awaits us in heaven one day. And may we always fix our eyes on such a glorious truth, such an incomprehensible reality that God would go to such great lengths to save men and women who are so unworthy and undeserved of it. What a God. What a love. Let's pray.